Oh, yeah, the kids can go. I'm glad you do that, because I would forget all the time. You're going? You want to stay here, Grandpa Preach? She says, no, but I'll go to Toys R Us for an hour if you got time. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 2. It's good to see you all here this morning, and as you know, we have been focusing on how to build a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been talking about the fundamental principles of what it takes in your life and my life to really have what, with God what we need to have. And uh, <clears throat> we know, and we've talked about this quite a bit, that we are living in the Laodicean church period. And we know from the book of Revelation that that is a time where basically God's people uh, literally throw God out of the church, throw His Word out of the church. We know that Laodicea means justice of the people. And it's a time in the history of the church where the rights of, God, the rights of people, Christians, are put ahead of the rights of God. And of course, you probably know this, if you're a Christian, you don't have any rights. You're a bond slave. You're bought with a price. The Lord Jesus Christ died for you, He bought you, and He is our Master. We don't have any rights. But that's the time period that we live in. And I know it's a very confusing time period. And if you're a visitor here this morning, you know, you're kind of dropping in the middle of our study. So what we talk about this morning, uh, you know, it isn't something that, you know, I just decided to do this week. We have come through a series of things. And this is just one more thing in the series that we're going to talk about as we come through. So it'll give you a little understanding. But we've been dealing with Proverbs chapter 2, which says this, My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom, and apply thine heart to understanding. Yea, if thou criest up after knowledge, and lifteth up thy voice for understanding. If thou seekest her as silver, and searchest for her as for hid treasure, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord, and find the knowledge of God. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. And Lord, we thank you for all that you do for us today. We thank you for your word, for its power, for its strength, for its truth and the impact that it will have on our lives to make us more like you every day. And Lord, we've had a good time so far today. We've laughed, we've enjoyed the fellowship and the camaraderie of believers, Lord, who love you and love your book. And now, Father, it's time to focus on the most important time of our day here, and that is looking into the Scriptures, which are the truth of God. Help us, Lord, to learn and to glean from your Word things in our lives that will make us more like you and stronger for you every day. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, as you know, we have been talking about the different aspects in chapter 2 that really uh, make you more like Christ. And in verse 5 last week, we talked about the two main issues that we face. And I told you long ago when we started our study in the book of Proverbs that there was two fundamental issues that we face in our world today uh, among God's people and among the world, society and everything. And one of them was, uh, down here in verse 5, Then shall thou understand the fear of the Lord. Simply stated, who God is. We talked about that last week. And I told you last week that that probably was the most, or that was going to be one of the most important messages you ever hear. This is going to be the second part of the most important message you ever hear in your life. Not because it's coming from me, but because of the content of what it does and how it impacts your life and my life in the Laodicean church period that we're in. Because we are, this church anyhow, and I believe that 
most of you, if not all of you, uh, want to make yourself a Philadelphian Christian in the Laodicean church period. And I'm out the build a Philadelphian church in this Laodicean time. So that's what this is all about. And today I want to talk about the fact where it says here in the second deal, it says, and find the knowledge of God. Simply stated, that simply means this. And this is the real question today. Do you have what God said? Do you, as a believer, have the exact words that what God wants you to have? Find the knowledge of God. Now, I want you to see that it isn't the knowledge about God. It doesn't say, and then shall thou find the knowledge about God, or the, uh, you know, thing, something about God. It says, the knowledge of God. God wants you and I to have His mind. God wants you and I to have His mind that we can make everything in life Our decisions, the things we have to look at, the things we have to deal with, God wants us to see it as He sees it. Because the only way we can get the mind of Christ, as the Bible says, and the Bible also has let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, the only way we can accomplish that is to have a book that contains God's mind. An absolute perfect standard, an absolute perfect record, of the thoughts of God, of the mind of God, that you and I as mortal beings can open up this book in a world that is filled with with filthiness and no truth and all of the vileness of the world, that we can have a book that we can open in the middle of this world that states what God says and what God thinks. Now that's the key. And that is the question today. The question today is, do you have... Do you have the words of God? Do you have what God said? Do you have the ability to know God from the aspect of His mind? Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak to you today, uh, and we're gonna be running around here in some different places, but I wanna talk to you today, uh, about some things in my own life that helped me get to this point. Now I'm the kind of individual that, that I really don't care what anybody believes. I've told you before. If the Bible teach, if I thought the Bible said we needed to speak in tongues and I really believed that, I got no pet peeve with that. I thank God I'd speak in more tongues than all of you. I, I, I want that. If, if salvation, uh, going to heaven was by baptism, I, I don't have a problem with it. I, I, I would, I would, I would do whatever the Bible said. It wouldn't want that I've got my pet doctrine or I got what I want to believe. I'm not that way. You know what I want? I simply want the truth. I don't care what it is. I don't care how bad it hurts. I don't care what it does. I, I want the truth, especially in this world today. I want the truth. I don't have, I don't come to the Bible with any preconceived ideas. I don't, I come to the Bible flat stupid. I come to the Bible not knowing anything. I come to the Bible just coming to it, simply stating God, I don't know a thing. I'm so stupid. I don't even know anything. I don't even suspect anything. And I want you to teach me the Bible, and I don't care what it is. Now that has always been my approach. And from a young man, when I first started getting into the Word of God, a number of years ago, 30 years ago, I was just getting into all this. And I was growing up in the, in the time when this was a very hot issue. It's not much of an issue anymore because the latest in church has just, you know, plandered itself to the place where it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not much anymore and, and everybody just takes for granted that what you're seeing around us today is biblical Christianity when it's not. But I'll never forget, and I was just a young guy, 
And I was just trying to find my way. But I wanted the truth. I didn't care what it was. And I remember back then, uh, I, I remember in, in my day and age, there was, there was, uh, it was 20 or so guys who were the top men in this country that would lead Christianity. And you would read them, you would hear them on the radio, you would read their articles, you would hear them preach. Many of these men in my course in the ministry, I met personally and talked with them personally. But you'd have guys like Dr. Jerry Falwell, guys like Dr. Charles Stanley, guys like John MacArthur, Clyde Naramore, Bob Jones II, Bob Jones III, Cecil Hodges, uh, uh, Dr. Ed Heinsohn, Chuck Swindoll, uh, Dr. Al Janney, Dr. Greg Dixon, Curtis Hudson, Dr. Custon, Dr. Neal, uh, Bill Gothard, uh, Dr. Holland London, uh, James Robinson, Dr. Dow, and all, I could go on forever. And I'm not speaking anything about these guys. Other than one fact I want to talk to you about this morning, that these were the guys that I was around when I was growing up. These were national men. And, and you could do the same thing today. You could go turn on a Christian radio and write down uh, any 20 guys you hear. Go to the bookstore and just breeze the authors of nationally known pastors. These guys were the national leaders. Every one of them is saved. Every one of them. There isn't a question about any one of these guys' salvation. And when I was growing up, these are the men my generation was listening to. They were leading Christianity in all fashions. Some of them are Baptists, some of them are not. It's immaterial. I don't get hung up on those things. But there's one thing that all these men had in common, other than being saved. And that is, not one of these men listed believed that the Bible was the Word of God. Now let me explain that. They, now one of these men believed that you and I could sit here this morning, or in your home, and open up the absolute, perfect, infallible Word of God that you could have the mind of Christ. Now, what... When I first got saved, I thought, I didn't know. In fact, I remember I went to a camp one time and I heard a guy preach. And he said, and he was preaching up there and, and he was great. And he said, you know what? And he said, he said, he, he was drawn while he was preaching. He said, you know what? He said, let me tell you something, kids. He said, if you take a stand for God and you make a, and you make your mind up that you're going to stand for the truth and you're not going to compromise when you're tempted to compromise. He was preaching on Ephesians chapter 5, the armor of God. He said, the battles that you're going to get into are going to make like all the battlefields of this life look like a bunch of kids shooting marbles. And he's drawn up there and he says, that's right. He says, the battle of Barn and the battle of Chateau-Therry and the battle of Guadalcanal and D-Day and, and Leyte and, and, and all these things, it's just going to be like a bunch of campfire girls to the battle you're going to find yourself in if you stand for that book. Now, he's just a young kid then. And I sat down there that night, and I, I honest to goodness, I, don't, I didn't believe that guy. But after 30-some years in the ministry, I know exactly what he's talking about. I'm telling you. I was, I believed when I got saved and when I started getting into this thing, and God was good to me. God put me some old, around some old Philadelphian preachers, the last of a dying breed, that really kept me straight. And kept me from getting into the mess. But I'm telling you, when I first got saved, I was dumb. I was like that kid, you know, I was seven years old. A big guy down the street, like he was like 18. And this is how I wanted truth. He came to me and he said, hey, you want to get smart? You're going to school in second, third grade, fifth grade. How things going? 
Well, I'm not too good. You want to get smart? I got some smart pills. Whoa, smart pills? How much are they? Well, they're 50 cents. You get 10. I would get 30. It'll last you for the month. 50 cents. Okay, gave him 50 cents. I bought those things, took one a day. Tasted terrible. Little round things. I did that for four months. And then I come to the conclusion, they were rabbit droppings. I went to him and I said, hey, for five months now, I've been buying these things with my lunch money. You get smart. And I really believe they're rabbit droppings. He said, see there, you're getting smarter already. <laughs> That's me. That's the way I was. I was dumb. Now, that story isn't true. But I, I, I believed when I got saved that everybody believed the Bible. I believed that everybody wanted to do right. Well, if you'd have told me that there were deacons up there that were conspiring against the pastor and people over here singing in the choir, singing great songs, and they hated the person over here, and they were slandering them and killing them and doing this, and if you'd have told me that, I'd have said, you're nuts. I'm saved. Everybody loves God and loves the Word of God. Boy, did I grow up quick. And I had to learn some things. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, in my day and age, those men were the leaders of this country, and you can pick the leaders of the Christianity today, and I promise you, 99.9999999% of them will, will, will say one thing, but they believe something else. I'm going to show you how I came to that conclusion. In 1978, they had in Washington, D.C., the Congressional Congress on Fundamentalism. Now, what was that? There was a bunch, it was these men, these men, and many, many other men, all of the Christian leaders in this country, wanted to go to Washington, D.C. and hold a Congressional, con uh, a Congressional Congress on Fundamentalism. In other words, what they were doing, Every Christian in the nation was supposed to be there. Every leader was there. They rented out some big convention hall. And for one solid week, they made a statement. You know how the gays go to Washington in the march and the peace movement goes here to march? Well, they did the same thing, only they didn't march. They went in and they rented out every hotel, every convention, big convention center, and they packed that place to make a stand for fundamentalism. Now, I didn't even know what fundamentalism meant. I was told at one time that it meant the fundamentals. Good. Later on in life, I found out and understand now, fundamentalist is a guy who has no fun, he preaches a whole lot of damn, and he's mental. <laughs> to me, that's fundamentalism. But back then, I didn't understand. And I'll never forget, I went to that Congress. I was there. They said it was going to be a historic event that the world would, would impact the world in America. America would be changed because we were finally going to go to Washington and, and make a stand as fundamentalists that we, 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 what we believed. They did a good job, didn't they? Nobody even knows they were there today. But I was there. I was there. And the issue number one they were all preaching on is... We believe the Bible, I'm going to say it just like they used to say it, inerrant, inspired, preserved, Word of God. Ooh, that's where I wanted to be. I was there. And 
that is really the first time I got in trouble by raising my hand. I told you last week about another time. There have been lots of times. This was the first. This was the first time I really... Because I was dumb. And I just wanted the truth. And I'll never forget, they started with a luncheon. And the man that was there was the president of Thomas Nelson Publishers. They publish all the Bibles. Look on the back of your Bible. You may have a Thomas Nelson. Now, if you do, when I'm done with his message, don't burn it. I'm not making any, I'm not making any personal attacks on anybody. Thomas Nelson is fine. I don't care. But I, we went out to luncheon. And he stood up there, and this is when the New King James Bible had just come out. And, and, and this guy, I can't even remember his name now. Maybe it was Thomas Nelson. I don't know. But anyway, he, he was there, and he was talking about the love that he had and his company had for the Word of God. Now, there was every top guy in the world there. I mean, these 20 guys I listed, plus 500 more, 1,000 more. The lunch place was just incredibly packed. And he's standing up there. And he's talking about how he loves the Word of God. How that his company stands for the Word of God. How important it is for him to be part of this because of the Word of God. And how he proud he is to be a, a, a company that publishes the Word of God in the absolute, infallible, plainly inspired Bible. And everybody's waving and screaming and yelling. So he's done. He says, are there any questions? Can I help you anyway? Well, at that point I was confused. And I was just dumb enough to think that he meant, are there any questions? I hadn't learned. In fact, the term politically correct hadn't been invented yet. But it wasn't invented with the Democrats or the Republicans. It was invented with the Baptists a long time ago. And he says, are there any questions? And they had a microphone up in the center. And he said, young man, he says, make your way up. And I was way in the back. Now, I'm telling you, I had come there because it was going to be a congress on fundamentalism on truth. And I was a young guy, and I wanted the truth. And I just heard this man stand up there, talk about his company. Now, I was confused. And I went up there, and I wasn't trying to get... I wasn't. Now, since that time, I've wised up, and I'll, I'll, you back me into a corner, I will bite you. Not then. I was a dumb kid. I'm the guy that bought the smart pills. And after he told me that, I still took him for another six months just in case I was wrong. I walk up to that mic, and he says, Yes, young man. And I said, Sir, I'm here from Kansas City, and... I'm a little confused, and I'm glad to be here, and I'm excited. And, and you said that your company took a stand on the Word of God, and you print uh, the King James Bible uh, and, and because of, of your love for the Bible. And I said, can I ask you a question? And maybe I'm wrong, but and I was very, I mean, I was inching my way in. And I said, Thomas Nelson also prints Mormon Bibles and Jehovah's Witness Bibles. I said, when you go to their conferences, do you say the same thing there that you say here? No, no. Now, you think I was being smart. Today, if I would say that, oh, I would be smart. And I'd have some flares in that thing. I wasn't. I wanted the truth. And he said something that did not compute. And 
if, if he wouldn't have said, are there any questions, I would have shut my mouth. But if you say to me, Bob, do you have any questions? If I don't understand, I'm going to ask. Don't say that unless you say it mean to me, to me to ask, because I want to know. And you'd have thought, I mean, not only was he offended, the same people who were around me were offended because I said something that was politically incorrect to the big dog that had come from Thomas Nelson. You know why? Because they were getting kickbacks for all the Bibles they told the people to go buy from them. And I was in the midst of the scribes and the Pharisees in the temple. I just didn't have a, 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 a cord with stones on it to drive them out. Wasn't my place. I just wanted to know. And I said, I said, you guys also publish Jehovah Witness Bibles and Mormon Bibles, don't you? I said, are they the inspired Word of God? Do you go to those places and say that? Oh, wrong thing. Okay. I got over that. Because I figured he really wasn't one of them. That night was Monday night. Dr. Al Janney preached. Oh, if there's any man that could preach the Bible, Dr. Al Janney could preach. And he preached that night. I'll never forget the message. It was on, on these we stand. Oh, I was a young guy. I sat down there and I thought, oh, someday I'm going to preach like that. Someday. And I, and I was so happy because I finally found in this guy, I finally hit pay dirt. Because he got up there and he was preaching away and he started out by talking about how the, the fundamentalists go back to the fundamentals and the fundamentals of this old book right here that your mama and your daddy was saved by. And he was, he was, and he said, I believe the Bible's the absolute infallible. He was waving that thing and I was happy as can be because I had, I found the niche. Forget Thomas Nelson. He was just a burp in the lunch meeting. I found the guy. Ooh, this is my guy. Afterwards, well, I had a little reception and they, they were interviewing everybody and, and, and Dr. Janney come up and he said, are there any questions that any of you guys, pastors, have about anything we can do for you at all? Now, you'd have thought I'd have learned by then, but I still wanted to know and I thought I found it. And I said, Dr. Janney, I, he said, yes, and I said, I said, I want you to know. He says, your message tonight was, was the greatest message I ever heard. And I want you to know. I said, you said the Bible was the infallible, absolute inspired Word of God. And you were waving your Bible. And I, I saw as we came in, I, I, I peeked, and, and you got a King James Bible. I said, do you... Uh, and I was, I was stuttering. I said, do you really believe the King James Bible is the absolute, perfect, inspired Word of God? And he says, no, 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 no. He says, you don't understand. I, I, I didn't know what to say. I said, you mean the King James Bible's not? He says, no. He says, everybody knows, son, that the original manuscripts are the inspired Word of God. What you have is a translation of that. I said, well, do you think this Bible... I was trying to go another way. I said, do you believe this, think this Bible has any mistakes in it? Well, he says, certainly it does. He says, but it's the best. I said, are there any mistranslations? And he says, well, sure. He says, any time you go from the, any language, any time you go from the Greek to the English, because of 
what they call enemies in there, you can't get the exact translation from this to this. Therefore, it's not going to line up the same way, so you have to go back to the Greek or the Hebrew to get exactly what he said. And you know what? And, and I, I wasn't smart enough to know this at that time. I mean, I had read it and studied it, but it's one of those things where God just... <sighs> and I said, well, sir, I got a question. And I said, I don't mean to belabor the point, but back in Exodus, where Moses spoke before Pharaoh, Pharaoh was an Egyptian, Moses was a Hebrew. Did they speak in Egyptian or did they speak in Hebrew? Well, he said, well, obviously they spoke in Egyptian. Pharaoh didn't recognize the God. Moses knew Egyptian. Pharaoh didn't know Hebrew. He says, what's your point? So they spoke in Egyptian. I said, but then it's recorded in Hebrew. If what you're saying is true, you didn't get exactly what they said. Because you're going from Egyptian to Hebrew. Oh, that was the wrong thing to say. And at that point he says, I, he said, I think you're just a troublemaker. And I said, no. No. Uh, no. No. I'm not. I want to know. I said, I want a perfect Bible. He says, then you have to go back to the Greek because the Bible is only perfectly inspired in the original languages. I said, okay. Okay, so what you're saying is that if I want to get the absolute, perfect, infallible, inerrant word that God says, i got to go back and read Greek and Hebrew and study it and get it from there. And then I'll have the Bible. He said, that's right. I said, have you ever read the originals? No. Have you ever seen them? No. Have you ever touched them? No. Why not? Well, they don't exist. I said... One more question and I'm done and I'm going back home. Let me ask you, what does, the mean, what does the word Bible mean? He says the word Bible means books. Was there ever a time when the original manuscripts were ever all in one book? No. Well then, Dr. Janney, what you're telling me is that when you stand up and wave this book, and say, we believe the Bible is the Word of God in the absolute, infallible, perfect, inerrant Word of God. You're talking about a book that nobody has ever seen, nobody has ever read, nobody has ever touched, because it never existed. Is that right? Let me tell you something. Meeting was over. And I came away that night understanding that I was in a warfare. And I came away to understand that when these guys talk about the inspired, complete, perfect Word of God, they're duping you. He's standing up there waving this book, saying your mommy, your daddy, your grandma, your aunt, your uncle were saved by this old book. And he doesn't even mean the book he's waving. He's talking about some ancient dead manuscripts that don't even exist anymore. And I learned very quickly what politically correct was when it came to the Word of God. And I spent the next 30 years of my life going everywhere I could, reading everything I could, putting myself into this thing, because you know what? I came away there saying, that is the problem I'm up against. And you know what? That's your problem today. Maybe it isn't your problem, but it's the problem for me. 
So with that in mind, with that in mind, I want to take you back and I want to show you one of the stories that God gave me that it illustrates exactly what I just said. Now, when it comes to your relationship with God, just let me say this. Forget your degree. Forget your education. Forget how smart you are. Because Jesus said, except you come to me as a little child, you have no, you no place with me, no part of me. You have to come as a child. You have to come as a child, not knowing anything. And if that's how you come, then that's what God meets you on. And boy, God will give you some things. But you know what? It, it always bothered me. Now, I'm not against Bible colleges, but I am against this. When you go to Bible college, you learn a system of terms. You learn sodiontology. You learn hermeneutics. Or hemorrhoidnutics, however you want to say it. You learn, you, you, that's a pain to study too. You learn, you learn, you learn angiology. You learn all of these great big $55,000 words. In other words, you go spend four years of your time, <clears throat> come back to learn to talk like nobody in the Bible ever talked about. Did Jesus, when he sat down to 5,000, did he say, today, I'm going to teach you sodiontology and apologetics and hemorrhoidics. Here we go. Now, here's what it's all about. No. He told them stories. You know how I learned my Bible? By the stories that God put in that Bible. You know why? Because I'm a child. The greatest preachers in this world today will want you to believe that they're spiritual and capable of leading because of their education. Because the first thing the pulpit committee wants to ask is not what you know about the Bible. Where did you go to school and what did you learn? Contrast that with the greatest king in the Bible, the wisest man that ever lived, that when he came before God and the people and God says, what do you want to run the people? He got on his knees and said, I'm a child. I don't know anything. I am totally dependent on you. So let's put away scholarship, intellectualism. Put away the manuscripts. Put away all this stuff. Let me show you. In the next 30 years of my life, let me show you where God took me. And one of the first things God showed me a number of months later was this story. And this story brought it all into focus. This was the automatic focus on my lens, man. And I saw everything clearly. 1 Samuel chapter 13. This will give you understanding. First Samuel chapter 13. And I'm going to begin reading down here. Uh, oh, let's pick it up in verse 17. And the spoilers came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned under the way that leadeth to Ophrah, under the land of Shul. Another company turned to the way of Beth Horon, and the other company turned to the way of the border to look toward the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. And there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share, his coulter, his axe, and his mattock. Yet they had a file for the mattocks and for the coulters and for the forks and for the axes to sharpen the gourds. 
So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan, but with Saul and with Jonathan, his son, uh, there was found. Now, I don't know what if you know what you're reading here or not, but here's what you've got. Saul is the king. Saul was not God's choice. Saul was the people's choice. And Saul will represent for us the 20th century modern educated spiritual leader slash pastor who marries himself to the world concept of being politically correct. We have the Philistines. The Philistines in the Old Testament always were, even to this day, are the enemies of God. They were one of the nations that by design the devil had penetrated and brought them under submission to himself that through that nation of whale worship and all of the satanic things that went on, the devil could destroy the people of God. And I want to start by saying this. I know most of you believe this, if not all of you. But I believe what the Bible says in Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, when it said, For when you received the word of God, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which affects the work of also in you that believe. And I know that right here you have a picture of what has happened today. Now, if you know your Bible at all, as I already said, you know the Philistines or the sworn enemies of the people of God. Not naturally, but by design. Their mission is to destroy the kingdom of God, and to enslave the people of God and to defeat them. That's the only reason they existed back in the Old Testament. And they are around today over in the Middle East, amalgamated with all those nations. And they are alive today. All through the Old Testament, at every turn, they tried to plague and to destroy the people of God from the book of Genesis right on through uh, where the kings of Israel were. In fact, in a couple of chapters later in chapter 17, when David goes out to fight Goliath, that giant Goliath that wants to defile the armies of Israel and defeat them, he's a Philistine. They never, ever in any way, shape, or form represent anything good. Now Saul, and I don't, if anybody pictures the modern day 20th century religious quote pastor in America, it's Saul. Because Saul refuses to see that the Philistines are his enemies. He thinks that he can make an alliance with them, that they can coexist and get along even though the Bible told him over and over and over and over again that he couldn't. If Saul has one character flaw that winds up being his downfall where God kills him, it's in fact he reads what the Word of God says and he doesn't believe it and he does his own thing based on the political correctness of the situation. Wow. Saul would not, could not, did not see the danger. He builds an alliance with them 
In fact, the Bible gave clear warning that the Philistines were going to be his enemy. You could not be friends with them. You could not coexist with them. They existed for one reason, that is to destroy and defeat the people of God. But all the time, even though he's trying to make friends with them and make an allegiance and alliance, the Philistines were interlocked with Satan to destroy the people of God. Saul, for whatever reason, politically, religiously, ignoring the danger in what the Word of God said, come to the conclusion that he was going to put all the blacksmiths out of business in Israel. So the Bible says, verse 19, there was no smith found in Israel because the blacksmiths made swords. And Saul says, well, look, you Philistine guys, you believe in God. We all can get along. You know what? We can probably even do some business together here. And he said, what, uh, if you leave us alone and we'll just kind of coexist, what do you want? And they said, we don't want anything. Just let us, give it, let us make some money. Let us make your swords. And you take all your Jewish blacksmiths, put them out of business. And we, the Philistines, will provide you with your weapon of war, your sword and your spears. Now, if you've been saved at least a year or more, you know that you're in a war. Ephesians chapter 6, we've studied it on Thursday night many times. You know the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and against powers. That's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, they had to have real swords because they were going up against real nations. And they were going up against real kings and kingdoms who wanted to see them destroyed, who because they were satanically controlled, wanted to wipe out and stop the plan of God of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. So they had an army Book of Numbers. The word Numbers is given because that's the book where they were numbered for war. And they're numbered together. And all the tribes are put together. And they fight. And they literally fight with real swords. And they defeat. When they do what's right and they obey God, the, nobody stands in front of them. Now that's all changed. The preacher, Saul, the religious leader, Saul, the king, Saul, has now made a political alliance with the ungodly world of the Philistines to say, no more swords from Israel, you give us your swords. And the Philistines didn't give many swords. Philistines said, you know what? You don't need any swords. Just use your old mattocks, use your old plow, use your old rake, use this, use that. We're not going to give you any swords. What we'll give you are gardening tools. Because we want to control you. And I'm telling you, you know that you're in a battle. And God's told you that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, that we're up against an evil day, and we're supposed to stand in an evil day, and we're supposed to having done all to stand. If that wasn't enough, Hebrews chapter 4 says, take the 
Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, a sharp two-edged sword. The Word of God is your sword in the New Testament because in the New Testament, you don't need a literal sword to fight the nations because your battle isn't literal. It's spiritual. You need a spiritual sword. So where the nation of Israel in a literal battle needed a literal sword, you and your spiritual battle need a spiritual sword. And where Saul sold out politically and religiously to the Philistines and got some gardening tools and they took the swords away, the leaders of this country today for the last hundred years have taken the sword through an alliance with the world and the ungodliness of the world in the religious sector to take your sword and then try to get you to stand and fight. Now that's why Christians fail today. They're trying to stand and do all to stand with a rake instead of a sword. The devil is not dumb. He knows the power in your life is that sword. Because when the Lord comes back and the devil gets defeated, it's a sharp two-edged sword that goes out of his mouth by which he smites the nation. It's the Word of God. Devil doesn't care if you have a share, a coulter, an axe, or a mattock. You're not going to do any damage with that. Those are gardening tools. But boy, he wants to make sure the souls of this world are in line with him, that he takes the sword out of your hand. And that's exactly what has taken place. Those 20, 25 guys, those men back there in 1978, they were nothing more than souls. Yes, they were saved, and they were on their way to heaven, but they had all one thing in common. They told me that the book that I was supposed to stand with never existed. They believed that. They took it from my hands. And they got mad at me because I wanted to ask, Where is my Bible? And I found on this issue there's two kinds of people. There's people who are just ignorant, who don't know the difference. And there's people who are downright dishonest that know the difference, but they got a political check in this thing, like Saul. You know what Saul's fundamental problem was? He was a king, and he was a prophet, but he was not a priest. There's only two men in the Bible that hold those three offices. King, prophet, priest. One of them is the Lord Jesus Christ, the other one is David. David was God's man, Saul was the people's man. You see how easy it is to find a pastor for your church? It only comes in two categories. They're either the people's man or they're God's man. People's man will always have a, a degree, they'll always have the thing going back to the world. God's man will just have a book. That's all you need is the book. You have to have the book. You got the book, you don't need anything else. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, when you understand this, when you realize it, it'll change your life. And I'm telling you, I told you before, it isn't just what you hear, it's how you hear it. No, I have no problem with anybody. And a guy comes to me and says, well, I don't really believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. I don't care. I don't care what anybody believes. But I will find out if you know why you believe what you do believe. All my life. All my life, since that time back there in Washington, D.C., all my life. I may not be raising my hand, but I'll ask the same questions. Years ago, a guy said to me, Well, you teach that those sons of God back there in Genesis chapter 6 were, were giants and angels. Wow, that is so far out. You're really weird. Nobody believes that. And I said, Well, what are they? 
He says, anybody knows that's got any education, that's the godly line of Seth. Okay? I know I'm dumb. I know I'm stupid. You may be right. Trace for me the godly line of Seth. Here it is. Trace it for me. If it's a line, and you know it's a line, then it's in this book, otherwise you wouldn't know it. Show me the godly line of Seth. Can I help you? It starts with Genesis, and then it runs to Exodus, and then it runs, can I help you? Show it to me. Don't stand there and tell me what you believe. Show me why you believe it. I want to know if you've studied as much as I have. He says, well, it was, it was saved people. The godly line was saved people. It's not really in the Bible. The godly line was saved people. And they were marrying all the wicked, unsaved people. And there was, yeah, I said, you're saying there were sons of God back in Genesis chapter 6? Well, sure. And they were saved people? Sure. Did they all marry the godly line? Was every one of them wrong? No, of course not. Okay. Next question. Why didn't they get on the ark? You know what I found out about this book over the years? This book has got a wrench that will fit any nut in this world. You won't go anywhere. And when you think you're going, he's going to put that number size four on you and crank you down. You can't get around it. You can't get around it. That book is the Word of God and wherever you go, if you just don't take it the way that it is, when you're done, you've got a thousand pieces sticking out of you that you don't know what to do with. I'm telling you. Laodicean Church. We've talked about it many, many times. Philadelphian church. We've talked about it many, many times. When you go back to the Philadelphian church, it's the greatest period of time in church history. A time where three quarters of the world is born again and know the Lord as their own personal Savior. And he says the key to that is the key of David. We've talked about it. The Word of God. This book. It's nothing more than a King James Bible going around the world about ten times. The British Empire has provinces and colonies everywhere in this world. In Africa, in India, in China, in Hong Kong, in Japan, wherever you want to go. Missionaries are going there and they're teaching people to read and write and speaking out English through a King James 16. It is the textbook for the schools. I know you don't get that today, but I'm not very politically correct. I know it's true. I read the books they don't want you to read. And I'm telling you, I look at that thing and right in the middle of that it says... It says, because you keep the book, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, he says, I'll keep you from the hour of temptation. And then he says, down in the next verse, he says, hold fast what you have, that no man steals your crown. Well, the only thing they've got listed in that chapter they've got is the Word of God. And he says, there's an hour of temptation coming when somebody is going to try to take your crown. That hour of temptation came. Around 1800 in America, 1800 in Europe, England. You know, being a studier of history the way that I am, trying to get it from the understanding of God, there's two places in history that, as far as I'm concerned, are absolute masterpieces of a stroke of genius that the devil pulled off. I mean, I know that he's wiser than any being outside of God. I know all that. I know that he knows the Bible better than anybody outside of Godhead. I know, I know everything I'm supposed to know about the devil. But I want to tell you something. There's a couple of times in history where he did it so magnificently that it's hard to believe that he pulled it off in front of everybody and everybody just bought into it. The first time is back in with the time of Constantine in 325 when he just reversed the whole thing from pagan Rome to papal Rome and overnight...
Roman Catholic setup was in there, and it was incredible. It was an incredible thing. The second time is when he took the King James Bible out of the American Christians, out of the English Christians. After 400 years of seeing God do what he did in a marvelous way, the devil walked in and swiped that thing out, and nobody even griped. You know how he did it? Look at verse 17. It says, And the spoilers came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. You know, I don't know if you know it or not. You know, in the book of Revelation, John writes the seven churches, and those seven churches represent the seven periods of church history. You know that Paul writes the seven churches. You know the seven churches that Paul writes to line up with the seven churches that John writes to as far as what they're going through. You know what lines up to Laodicea in Paul's writings? It's Colossians. Colossians. Five times in the book of Colossians. Maybe you've seen this. Five times in the book of Colossians you find the word Laodicea, Laodicea, Laodicea. That's the one that matches up. Remember I taught you last week the number one problem that you have in America is who God is? You know how the outline of Colossians goes? You know what the first chapter of Colossians talks about? It talks about who God is. You know what chapter 2 and 3 talk about? It talks about the issues that we have to face in the latest in church. And the last chapter talks about how we deal with them. You know the number one thing you got going on in, in, in Colossia that's going on in Laodicea, that's going on right here because the Holy Spirit of God put this thing together? He says down here in verse 17, when these Philistines showed up, they're called spoilers. And they wanted to spoil Israel. So when you call over to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, you find a warning. One of the two warnings in the Bible. You know what he says? He says, beware any man spoil you. Spoil you. How? Philosophy. How? Vain deceit. How? Tradition of the fathers. How? Rudiments of the world, Philistines. You know how this thing happened? I'm going to tell you how it happened in a short thing. Because I'm finished just here very quickly. Here's how it happened. Philadelphian church age was going full bore. Everything was running great. But the devil didn't die. You take any college class on manuscript evidence and they act like God and the devil's dead. When's the last time you heard a good college class on the active demonism and devil in manuscript evidence? Never hear it. You know why? They think when it came to the Bible, the devil forgot about it. He didn't forget about it. Why, Paul says himself, he's not even dead yet, and he said there's people corrupting the Word of God already. I mean, it is so clear, it's so prevalent, it's unbelievable, other than the fact that somebody either ignorant of the fact or they don't want to believe it because they're dishonest. But here's what happens. All around 1400 someplace, they're digging around over there in the Vatican, and they find these old manuscripts. Somebody said, whoa, these manuscripts are written around 400 A.D., we don't have anything in the world that's around 400 A.D. By the way, just let me put you in perspective on something else since it's just time of the, time of the year and it was just Saturday. What was, remember what Saturday was? What parade did we have Saturday? When's St. Patrick's Day? Oh, okay, but we had the parade yesterday. Green beer, green hats. You know when, you know when his name wasn't St. Pat, his name was Patricius. He lived 389, 400 A.D. You go over to Ireland. This is understanding. It fits in here. I'm just going to throw it in. You don't have to pay extra for it. It's yours. You go over to Downshire, Ireland, 
walk down to that little cemetery on the south end of town, walk in there, you'll see a little tombstone. You know what it says? It says, Patrick, an apostle to Ireland. He wasn't a Catholic. He was a born-again, blood-washed, Bible-believing, preaching Christian. You know what he'd do? He'd go out and he believed the manuscripts from which your King James Bible come from. Never touched the other ones in a day in his life. He'd go out in that, in that wilderness out there of Ireland with a big old drum. And late at night, <coughs> he'd build a fire and he'd beat that drum. And all the people, all the tribesmen, all the, 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 the country folk would come from miles around. And he'd come to that fire to hear what that drum is. And he'd get about 200 people down there. Then he'd open up his old Greek New Testament from, Syri- uh, from uh, old Syriac or the old Latin. And he'd preach to them and get hundreds of them saved. That's St. Pat. No green beard, no green hat. That's St. Pat. That's St. Pat. But anyway, little sidelight. That's understanding. So during this time, over in the Vatican, <coughs> they find these manuscripts. <coughs> 400 years later, about 1860, a guy by the name of Tischendorf, <coughs> German linguistus, linguist, linguini, I don't care. He's, he's a German scholar. He's over in the Sinai Monastery, over in the Sinai Peninsula. It's a cold day. He's checking out the monks. He sees a couple monks over in the corner lighting a fire. Better than checking out the nuns. What are you laughing at? <laughs> he's, he's lighting a fire with his manuscripts. Tishonor looks over and he says, Wait a minute, boys. Here. Here's a bic. Let me see. Let me see. Well, these are the oldest manuscripts anybody ever seen. These date around 400 A.D. Well, there isn't anything in the world older than this. So he says, can I, can I have these? No. You can't have them. We got them. Well, let, but, but you don't understand. Uh, and they go back and forth. Fights them for, for months. They won't give them to him. So he finally says, look, just let me take them to England and I want to photograph them. We'll send them back. Mm, cross my heart, hope to die. I'll send them back. Okay, you can take them. He took them. Never sent them back. You know where they're at today? They're in the British Museum. He sold them for a million dollars. That's the guy that's behind your Bible. So they come to this thing here, and now we got these two sets of manuscripts. These are called Sinaiticus, these are called Vaticanus. Don't you love the way I can make 6,000 years in history in 16 seconds? They get all these manuscripts together, and around about 1800, here's two guys, Dr. Hort and Dr. Westcott from Cambridge University. Dr. Hort and Dr. Westcott, they look at these manuscripts, and they say, I say, old chap, this is the most extraordinary thing we've ever seen in our life. There's nothing in the history of the world that's going to precedent what we've got here. We have here the oldest biblical manuscripts that is known to man. The only other manuscripts we have are down around the 15th and the 16th century. These date back to 400 A.D., and they proposed a theory. And the theory was this. Older is better. Older is more accurate. And on that theory, they translated those manuscripts into a Greek New Testament, which went into a revision committee in 1883 and produced the RSV in 1888. They proposed the theory that because they're older and they're closer to Christ's time, they must be better, more accurate. Therefore, who cares they come from the Roman Catholic Church? 
Who cares of anything that about who cares that Westcott and Hort, Tischendorf, and the guys like Mesham, Grayson, and and uh, and Warfield, and Robinson, and Nestle, who finally took it all and produced the Greek New Testament. That if you go to a Bible college today, when they teach you Greek, they teach you out of Nestle's New Testament Greek. What did all these guys have in common? One, one, none of them believed anything about the Bible, that it was supernaturally given from God. And two, if every man believed what he wrote he believed, they're all in hell tonight, this morning, this afternoon, whenever it is. They didn't believe anything. They believed you got to be baptized to get to heaven. They were Anglican. They were, they were bishops that believed in baby sprinkling. They were, they were everything that the Word of God wasn't. But you see, during this time, the rise of being a scholar comes on the scene. The rise of being noted. And the scholars develop what I call the scholars' union. You know what the first sin in the Bible is? You say Adam and Eve. No, you're wrong. First sin in the Bible is the devil back there in Genesis chapter 1 saying, I'm not satisfied with what I am. I want to be God. You know what the second sin in the Bible is? It's Eve saying, I'm not satisfied with what I am. I want to know. When God came to her, or the devil came to her, he said, now you eat this fruit, you're going to know. That's all you've got to say to a woman. Tell a woman you can know, she'll buy it right now. That joke is not working. Let's move on with something else. <laughs> Even Minnie didn't laugh. You know what? Devil said, I'm not satisfied. I want to be God. Eve said, I'm not satisfied. I want to be like the gods, knowing. And you know what the one number one problem you and I have to deal with all the time? Is staying who we are. And when you, when you start reading your own press releases and you start believing you're really as good as everybody thinks you are, you're in trouble. And boy, you fan that thing with education that you can know and know in, in, in scholarship. And you know this, if you've got to learn Greek and Hebrew to know your Bible, you realize that both those languages are dead, and you realize that, uh, uh, you realize that there's less than one millionth of one percent of people that speak those languages in the whole world today. You realize that what the one millionth of one percent can really find out what the Word of God says? How stupid is that? But you see, do you ever go to the doctor? Go to the dentist? Sit down there in that chair and he says, Well, hmm, I always hate when they go, hmm, hmm, hmm. And he looks to his assistant and he says, The bicuspices are incinerated and the upper molars are uh, got conglomerations on the inside of the upper cestaceans, and we're going to have to uh, do a pull by uh, intellectual uh, wreck uh, to get this thing worked out. Now I'm nervous. Can I call my wife, tell her I'll be here for a couple of months before I'll get home? You know what he just said? He said, the big teeth on the bottom and the little teeth on the top got some dirt in them, and I'm going to get them out here and scrub it out. But you see, if he said, Bob, the big teeth on the bottom and the top, he couldn't charge you 120 bucks an hour. In other words, he went to school to learn those Latin terms to keep you and me out and put the dentist in the union. You go to a doctor. Ah, oh, doctor, I got problems. I got, I got, I got, I got pains in my. I got pains in here. And he says, "Hmm." Oh, I hate when he goes, "Hmm." Well, you have a gastrous bronchitis of the inside of the incisors, and we got some problems down here with the cadapius of the inside of the cojonia, and it looks like we're going to have to foliate the inside of that congladulator to get that thing cleaned out. Translation: You got gas. <laughs> <laughs> 
Did you see? Turn it in on H- HMO, HBO, yeah, HMO. <clears throat> What's he got? Gas? $643? No, but if you say it's a psychedelicus of the inside, of the, you can get some money out of it. You know why? He went to school to learn those terms, Latin terms, dead language. You go out to the conservation department. You say, I hear you got a problem out here. No, no problem. Well, it was in the paper, and I heard from some of the gun shops that you're having an open season on coyotes because the coyotes are just running rampant out here, and you're going to let people in hunt. I want to shoot some coyotes. Guy said, well, just a minute. Hey, uh, sir, we got a man down here who wants to go out and shoot some canine calopius of this of stopulus. It's all Latin. You're sitting on the other side thinking you're gonna, you want to go out and shoot Tyrannosaurus rexes. I mean, you know, I want to shoot coyotes, the little dogs, but they're not called little dogs and coyotes. They've got a Latin name that long. That's a garter snake. No, that's a conglopius alessa. It's got a name that long. That's a box turtle. No, that's a snemnopius. It's that long. Why? What's the deal? Because a conservation officer says, I'm in the union. You're not. I went to school to learn those terms. So you're smarter because I still know it's a turtle? Okay. Okay. That's the way it is. You learn the terms, you're a Bible scholar. You don't learn the terms, subscribe to the union, you're not. You know how the old song goes. I see by your outfit that you are a cowboy. I see by your outfit that you're a cowboy too. You see by our outfits that we are both cowboys. You get you a cowboy suit, you can be a cowboy too. That's how it works, you see. Oh, you're a Bible scholar? Yes. Doctor, how are you, doctor? Do you read that first name, uh, the first 20 guys? Dr. Doe, Dr. Doc. There's so many doctors you think God's sick. They're all doctors. Everybody's a doctor. Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine. I mean doctor. Doctor, how are you, doctor? Fine, doctor. How are you, doctor? Fine, I'm doctor. Fine, I'm doctor so-and-so. I'm doctor so-and-so too. Well, we're doctors. I get a doctor suit on. I'm a doctor suit. We're doctors. You're a doctor. I'm a doctor. Hey, good to have you, doctor. Thank you, doctor. Now we're going to speak to us, doctor. Doctor, come up and speak to doctor. I'm doctor so-and-so, and I want to speak to you about doctor so-and-so. Because doc- So thank you, doctor so-and-so. And all my other doctor so-and-so that brought me here tonight, because I just want to tell you, oh, give me a break. But that's where we're at today. Now, let me just say this to you. In the Bible. Well, let's do a terrible trick. Let's go back to the Bible. In the Bible. Do you know who the custodianship of the Word of God was given to in the Old Testament? It was given to the priesthood. The Levites. They're the only ones that could write down whatever was said. Nobody else could. The Levites were the custodians of the Word of God. The Levites, the priesthood were the custodians of the Bible in the Old Testament, and nobody could do anything with the Bible. They couldn't. It, it, it passed through generation after generation of the priest and the Levites. Hebrews chapter 8 and 9 says that you and I, as the body of Christ, or the New Testament priesthood at the order of Melchizedek, and we are priests. And you want to find the Word of God, the true, absolute, perfect Word of God down through history? Don't go with the scholars. Don't go with J. Mesham Gratian. Don't go with Westcott and Hort. Go back to the true biblical line of priesthoods. They always have been and always will be the custodians of the Word of God. That's where it's at in history. No scholars union. Nothing you've got to learn. Nothing you've got to join. But I'm telling you, this story here changed my perspective on the Word of God because I knew now 
that all the Saul's in this world wanted to make it politically correct. They wanted to make alliance with the Philistines. They wanted to do what they needed to do to get what they wanted to get out of it. But the true bottom line is, it was never the Saul's that do the battles in life anyhow. Never is. Never is. One last thing and we're done. Turn over here to verse 24. It's never the Saul's. Never the Saul's. He takes, <coughs> he takes the swords from the people <coughs> and then says, Go out and fight. Look at verse 24, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 14. Verse 24. Here it comes, and we're done. Saul sends him out to fight, but Saul doesn't go out to fight. You know what? It's the little guy that's going to get the job done. Always has been, always will be. Let me show you. And the men of Israel were distressed that day. Why? For Saul, the big spiritual leader, Saul had adjured the people, put them under a religious oath, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening, that I may be avenged of mine enemies. Personal agenda. None of the people tasted any food. And all, that they, and all they that of the land came to a wood, and there was honey upon the ground. Type of the Word of God. Psalms 119. And when the people were coming to the wood, behold, the honey dropped. God brought it to them. But no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. The preacher kept them from getting the Word of God under some stupid religious oath that had to do with his own personal vendetta and agenda, nothing to do with the plan of God. Are you getting this? But Jonathan, verse 27. You know who Jonathan is? We know who Saul is. We know who the Philistines are. Who Jonathan? Who Jonathan? In my story today, who Jonathan? Who Jonathan? Who Jonathan? Who Jonathan? Oh, let me help you. I'm Jonathan. I just been to the fundamental congress with Saul. Everybody's telling me what the problem is. They're trying to take my sword, telling me not to eat. Got their own personal agendas. But Jonathan, that's me. Heard not when his father charged the people with the oath, wherefore he put forth the end of a rod that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb. Look at this. And he put his hand to his mouth and his eyes were enlightened. Anytime you get that book, boy, it's going to change your perspective. What did it do for him? Then said Jonathan, I mean, uh, uh, verse 28, then answered one of the people and said, Thy father straightly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food this day. And the people were faint. And Jonathan said, My father hath troubled the land. She, I pray you, how mine eyes have been enlightened because I tasted a little bit of honey. I'm telling you what. The religious leaders of this world have troubled Christianity. See what I got? Bob, you're so smart. See what I got? Bob. You are such an intellectual. You see what I got? Bob, I just stand in awe at your intellect. You see what I got? I ain't got any of those things. I just got a little bit of honey. And that honey opened up my eyes and I saw where the real problem was. And you know what? <laughs> I got me a book. I know who he is and I know what he said. Thirty years ago, I struggled and I came out of that meeting in that last thirty years, God has confirmed in my heart that a little honey will enlighten your eyes. Who God is, what God said, my story, Pastor Saul, 
taking the swords. Telling the people to go out and fight. Don't eat any of that. Go fight. I got a personal agenda. Go Don't eat till my enemies are avenged. People out there struggling, falling down in the woods, can't go any farther. Jonathan shows up and says, I'm really hungry. I can't fight. Ooh, a little honey. Mm. Boy, his eyes are lit up and he saw what the issue was. That's the key. Let's pray. Father.